the National Archives podcast series, Internment, presented by Roger Kershaw. This podcast is part of the special series, The Second World War in Focus, marking the 70th anniversary of the outbreak of war. You can find speakers' notes and featured documents to accompany this podcast at nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks very much, Jerry. Hope you can hear me all. I'm going to talk to you for probably about 45, 50 minutes. And there's about uh, 50 slides. It may be a little bit longer or shorter because it's quite a big subject to get through. It's essentially about the policy of internment in this country during the Second World War to help commemorate the 70th anniversary of the start of the Second World War. But I felt I needed to say something about what we've got for the First World War. And the sad thing is very few files survive relating to the internment of enemy aliens during the First World War. So essentially we're talking about, on the outbreak of war in 1914, Austrians and Germans. But the records we do have kind of like fall into three categories, policy files, personnel records and camp records. And unfortunately, as I say, most, most don't survive. Most were actually destroyed under statute or when they ceased to, beco to become of any administrative use and they weren't selected as public records. But there are some lists of enemy aliens who sat before internment tribunals at the start of the First World War, at the end of 1914, beginning of 1915. And this is one of those records. It's, it's actually quite a popular record. And if you're tracing someone who is assessed for internment during the First World War, this is the best place to start. And the, re the reference of this file is HO144-11720. And it's a Home Office file. Um, and as you can see, it really lists those people who sat before tribunals but were assessed to be of no threat to the security of the country. Uh, and details often include their full name, where they were living, uh, their occupation, their age, and details of their spouse uh, and uh, children. Uh, we also have some camp records of aliens who were interned at places across the United Kingdom, including camps set up in the Isle of Man, and locations uh, such as Alexandra Palace, which was used as a uh, internment camp, and also some lunatic, lunatic asylums were uh, converted into uh, holding enemy aliens for the duration of the war. And some will include lists of internees who were, who were housed there. And there are also policy papers, but by and large, the, the general message for the First World War is that records of central government relating to internment have simply not been selected or weren't selected as, as public records. It is worth contacting some local archives, particularly those archives which included areas which housed uh, internments, uh, internees, or, or set up camps, such as the Manx Heritage Museum on the, on the Isle of Man. But essentially today is to talk about the Second World War. The last thing about the First World War that I managed to find in our records is a photograph, a rare photograph, of a First World War camp on the Isle of Man. And this is a camp set up at a place called Knocklo, or Knocklo. And it's actually part of a correspondence file for the Islington internment camp in 1915, where there had been a request for a group photograph. And this whole file is really correspondence to see whether a precedent was being set or whether it was perfectly okay to, to actually have a group photograph for internees and the commandant of the Islington camp had to seek permission need to actually go ahead with the photograph that was requested. And one of the evidence that, that, that's included in, in the file is this photograph from the Isle of Man camp. 
But as I say, it's really about the Second World War today, and here we're here to talk about generally trying to appreciate the policy behind the uh, internment once war was declared in September 1939, and then looking at some of the resulting files, both files relating to individuals that were interned or assessed for internment, and files relating to the camps that were set up. So the picture is much rosier for the Second World War in terms of uh, the survival of records. A significant amount of material has been selected as public records for this period. And as I say, records generally fall into these three categories, policy, personal, and camp records. But to appreciate a bit of the history behind this, upon the declaration of war on the 30th September 1939, there were some 70,000 UK resident Germans and Austrians who had settled here as civilians and retained their German and Austrian nationality so they hadn't become British by taking out naturalisation. Or in the case of women at that time, by marrying a British man, she would then assume British nationality. So there was quite a job before the government, and the Home Office, through the Aliens Department, had to set up internment tribunals throughout the country to assess these 70,000 individuals to see whether or not they were a threat to the government, to the security of the country, or, or not. And sitting on these uh, internment tribunals were local government officials, maybe justices of the peace, civil servants, and their object was to divide the, the people who sat before them into three categories. Category A was that they were of a danger to the country, so they would immediately have to be interned in a camp. Category B was to be exempt from internment but subject to restrictions decreed by the special order. So obviously there'd be a, a limit to where they could travel and they'd have to report to the police more often than normal. And category C was that they were found to be uh, no threat at all. In fact, in many cases they were fleeing uh, Nazi hostility. They were Jewish refugees, for example. And people who were in category C were exempt from both internment and any restrictions. And in terms of numbers, there were 120 tribunals established in September, and they were assigned to different regions of the UK. The majority were established within the London area, where the largest numbers of Germans and Austrians were residing. For example, there were 11 set up out of these 120 in northwest London alone. And the police were responsible for providing the details of enemy aliens, and this would give the, the guys who were on the tribunal some information about, about them rather than simply interviewing. And the reason the police did this is that under the Registration of Aliens Act of 1914, all aliens had to record their details with the police, and they had to notify the police of any change in terms of their occupation, their residence, anything about them. So, that, so theoretically, the, the police had the up-to-date information about them. Now, to illustrate this talk, I've got three case studies a case study relating to Arthur Weidenfeld, the uh, one half of the publishing giant Weidenfeld and, and Nicholson. Franco, Frank Bert, Bernie, who helped set up with his brother one of the first Bernie steakhouses in the 1950s. And Eric Kahn, who was a German Jewish expressionist painter. And all three of them appear in records relating to internment during the Second World War. So these 120 tribunals, they were set up in September 1939, and by February, so less than six months later, they'd finished all their work, and they had assessed some 73,000 individuals. 
And the vast majority, about 90%, or 66,000, were classed as Category C. So they were no threat at all, and in most of these cases, they could provide evidence that they were, they were in fact, Jewish, uh, relatively newly arrived in this country, escaping persecution in Germany and Austria. And they reckon about 55 to 60,000 were actually Jewish refugees of, of, that, of those 66,000 who were in Category C. Some 6,700 were classified in B, so that meant that they, they weren't interned, but they were subject to special restrictions. And only 569 were classified as A, so these were staunch pro-Nazi uh, uh, supporters. And those classified in Category A were immediately interned in camps which were set up across the UK, as they had been in the First World War. The largest concentration, again, happened to be the Isle of Man, though others were set up in and around Glasgow, Liverpool, Manchester, Bury, Highton, Sutton Coalfield, Kempton Park, Lingfield, Seaton and Paynton, just to mention a few. So let's tell you a little bit more about these individuals. Arthur Weidenfeld, born in Vienna in 1919, so he was Austrian. And he went on, as I say, to form the publishing company Weidenfeld and Nicholson. But at the start of the Second World War, he was 20 years old. He'd only recently arrived in Britain in 1938. So he was around about 19 or 20. So he sat before a tribunal panel. Remember, you, you had to be uh, anyone 16 or over uh, until the age of 70 would sit before the tribunal panel. After the war, he took out British citizenship in 1946. Franco Burney, a little bit older than George Weidenfeld, he was born in 1903, so he's in his late 30s at the outbreak of war. And with his brother Aldo, he formed the first Burney in steakhouses in 1955. He was Italian by nationality, and he emigrated to Wales in the early 1920s to join his father, who'd set up a catering cafe restaurant business. And despite becoming British in 1934, so he took out British nationality, he found himself interned in 1940, following Britain and France's declaration of war on Italy. And we'll come on to his case and why he was interned despite being British in a moment. And finally, Eric Kahn is the German expressionist painter. He was born and lived in Germany until, persecuted by the Nazis, he found himself imprisoned at the Weltheim, Weltheim concentration camp uh, in South Germany. And after taking refuge in Britain in 1938-39, he was interned for a while at Hutchinson camp on the Isle of Man, despite clearly being a, a Jewish refugee escaping uh, Nazi atrocities. He was born in 1904, and he took out British citizenship in 1959, dying in London in 1979 at the age of 75. So let's start off with Arthur Weidenfeld. This is a, a typical card. For the, for, it's like a summary card of the internment uh, panel, the tribunal panel, which was set up, as I say, in September 1939. And he was one of the 66,000 who were classified as Category C. So he represents about 90% of all those, of the decisions. So he would be exempt from internment. And as I say, most, but by no means all, of those 55,000 Jewish refugees came into Category C. And you can see what kind of information this, this, this card provides. Full name, full date of birth, where he was born, his nationality, his address, his occupation. He was working for the BBC as a foreign announcer. And then you've got the decision of the tribunal quite clearly. 
in October 1939, he was exempted from internment. And on the back of these cards, for those who were exempt, there's a clear reason why that is the case. And in Arthur's case, it simply says he is employed by the BBC as announcer of foreign programmes. So clearly that there's something he can do for the, uh, for the Allies in, in, in the war effort. And more of a statement of fact, he is a Jewish refugee escaping Nazi autocracy, so clearly doing some useful work there. Sometimes the decisions for the, uh, for the, for the, the reasons for the decisions are much more detailed. This is one for a 16-year-old boy who was sat before the tribunal. And as you see there, there's, there's, there's quite clearly a very detailed account of why this particular individual was exempt from uh, internment. He was only 16 years old, and the card goes into great detail about how he and his family had escaped persecution from Vienna, and how he was now settling in school at Falmouth. And as I say, being 16, this is probably one of the, the youngest cases that was uh, that sat before the tribunals. So you can't really take the case of uh, Arthur Weidenfeld any further. Quite often, on these cards, there's a reference here, uh, next to Home Office reference, it's known. And if you have a reference there, you can take it further, but I'll, I'll, I'll explain a bit later how, how you can take that further. The National Archives do hold some police registration cards of aliens, but only for the London metropolitan area. And Arthur Weidenfeld was actually living in Herefordshire and Worcester. So if any police registration records survive for him, they're likely to survive at the local archives. But by and large, police registration records were destroyed and, and not preserved as, as public records. But if you wanted to uh, have a look at Arthur's case and any of those where a decision was made not to intern them, you just need to go to the Moving Here website. And the Moving Here website was set up by the National Archives with 30 other institutions to celebrate the migration to Britain for the last 200 years. And it's free to search and download any records on that site. And obviously the records include records and artefacts from a host of organisations, some public, some private. But part of our contribution are the cards for those people who were who were assessed not not for internment. Okay, moving on to the second case study, that of Frank Burney. Now Frank Burney was a he wasn't uh, an enemy alien as such because his status was British, having taken out British citizenship in 1934. However, by May 1940, with the risk of German invasion high, regardless of their category classification, a further 8,000 Germans and Austrians who were resident in the southern strip of England found themselves suddenly interned. So the decision not to intern them was, was suddenly re was, uh, reversed. And at the same time, resident, alien, uh, sorry, resident Italians were also considered for internment following Italy's declaration of war on Britain on the 10th of June 1940. And some 4,000 resident Italians who were known to be members of the Italian Fascist Party and others aged between 16 and 70 who had lived in the UK for less than 20 years were ordered to be interned. And Frank Burney was one of those. And this particular file is, is very rich in detail about the case of, of Frank Burney. There is no alien internment card for him because he didn't sit before an alien tribunal. He was, he was separately arrested and interned under the Defence Act on June 1940 for being a person described as of hostile associations. And initially he was detained in Liverpool prison 
and later he spent some time at the internment camp in Hightum. And this file, and then the record is HO405-2103, is a file all about him, and it's particularly rich about his appeal against, against the decision to intern him. And what you can find are statements following his arrest uh, from him and from, from other people as well. This is a letter that he wrote in Bristol Prison only a couple of days after he'd been interned, and clearly he's very confused about the decision to intern him, so it's, it's a statement from him. And on the 10th of December, following his arrest, he appeared before an advisory committee to consider appeals against orders of internment. And this particular record provides the full detailed transcript of that appeal. He had, as I say, been arrested in June, six months earlier. And the key reason for his arrest was that he, he was a member of this hostile organisation, which was the Italian Fascist Party, the Fascio. And he had been so since 1923. He became a member because some of his friends had done so, or, or so he claimed in his, in his, in his statement. And it, it was because it enabled him also to attend annual dances at the Park Hotel and the Royal Hotel in Cardiff. And he claimed he had never attended meetings of the Fascio and did not know where their headquarters were in Cardiff. He also said that he never wore the fascist badge in this country, but he did when he returned to Italy in the 1920s and 1930s. And on a visit, he's quite clear, in, to, to Italy in 1933, he was appalled at the brutal methods employed by the fascists, and on his return, applied successfully for naturalisation and was granted a British passport as a result of becoming British in 1935. So this was his, the basis of his appeal. And there there's an account of where he entered into a uh, bit of an altercation with how, how appalled he was by some of the, the behaviour of the fascists in, in Italy. He denied ever being a member of the committee of the Cardiff Fascia, and he endeavoured at the beginning of the war to join the special constabulary and later joined the, jo tried to join the ARP service in Cardiff. So clearly part of his defence was to prove that he was actually on the side of the British in, in, in the war. And he also had no objections to the fighting against all the king's enemies, including the Italians. The file also include, includes letters in support of his appeal from business associates, uh, friends and associates of his, his father and family, people who'd known him since he, he came to this country in the 1920s. One also includes a letter of support from a justice of the peace. So he was arrested in June 1940, he, was, uh, he went to prison in, in Bristol and he then was transferred to Highton internment camp in Lancashire and in December, six months after his arrest, the, con the committee considered his appeal. And this appeal was basically that Bernie was very much rooted to this country, that any sympathy he had had for Italy had for some time been a moribund and that his connection with the fascist party was little more than superficial. And as a result, the committee recommended his release from detention, and Bernie went on uh, with his brother, as I say, Aldo, to establish the first Bernie in Steakhouse in 1955, remaining in England until his death in 2000 at the age of 96. Okay, and finally, case of Eric Kahn. This is the Jewish-German expressionist painter, born in 1904 in Germany where he stayed until persecuted by the Nazis, he found himself imprisoned 
at the Weltsheim uh, concentration camp, the end of 1938, beginning of 1939. Miraculously, he then somehow made it to Britain as a Jewish refugee in 1939. However, relatively soon after his arrival, he found himself sitting before an alien internment tribunal being assessed either as category A, B or C. And as you see, he was living in London, uh, Ravenscourt Avenue. Occupation was a painter, artist. And you can see, hopefully there, that the initial uh, decision of the internment tribunal was that he should be free or exempt from internment. And that's the key message at the very top of that card. It says, male enemy alien, exemption from internment, refugee. However, as I said before, by June 1940, with the risk of German invasion high, regardless of their classification at the time, a further 8,000 Germans and Austrians who were resident in the southern strip of England suddenly found themselves interned, and this was the case of Eric Kahn. Now, the reverse sides of these cards, for those who were interned, are still closed for 85 years. So if you wanted to see what happened to Eric Kahn, why they changed their minds, where he was interned. You need to apply under the Freedom of Information Act for that reverse of the card to be released. Because technically those cards will remain, or the reverses will remain closed until 2030. And a decision regarding any review to requ any request to review a document is made within 20 working days. So what happened to Khan? Well, as we know, in June 1940, all of a sudden, he was arrested and he was interned. And he was interned at the Hutchinson camp on the Isle of Man. And we'll, we'll look, in, look, look at the file in more detail in a moment. But after the war, he became a renowned and, uh, artist and took out British citizenship like Frank Burney and Arthur, Arthur Weidenfeld, in his case, in 1959. And he died in London in 1979 at the age of 75. And Eric Kahn was one of a number of Jewish-German artists who were, or spent some time in the Second World War, interned in, camp, in camps. And quite a lot of their work has been, has been on display in a number of venues over the last few years to, set, to celebrate some of their work. Another one was, was Hugo Dachinger, Dachinger, and he was interned at the uh, Heighton camp in Lancashire. And this is just some of his artwork to reflect some of his time there. And that's a, a, a picture or drawing of the heightened alien, enemy alien camp. So Khan's file, the, the, the Home Office file, remember that reference on the card? It was K18836. And that was on his internment card over here. And you could just type that into the catalog of it for no restriction. And it would convert to a modern DNA reference. So Home Office 405 651. And this file is really all about Khan arriving in the UK, whenever he arrived in the start of 1979, right up to the point at which he became British. So the 20 years of his life is in this file. This series is all closed for a period of 100 years, but under the FOI Act, you can request for any file here to be reviewed. And it helps tremendously your case if you can prove that the individual to which the file relates has died. So I actually uh, asked for this to be opened a few years ago, and it was opened 20, within 20 working days because I could provide evidence that Eric Kahn died in 1979. 
And when you apply for records to be opened under FOI, it's simply a case of following the prompts on the catalogue, and then that will generate an email that will come through to our section, if you're, if you're not familiar with that. So this is, this is part of that file. You know, I think these files are really good at just summarising someone's reason for being in this country, because this is obviously something the Home Office were interested in. So it provides, you know, rich detail of someone from their arrival right through until they became naturalised, as this, as this one does. As you can see there, he was, he was very much associated with his profession as being an artist. He, was, he belonged to the Hampstead Artists Council, exhibited work there, and he, he was interned for a short period in, in 1941. The file actually extends beyond uh, his period of internment. He was released in February 1941, but he joined the Free German League of Culture in 1942, an organization that was known to have communistic sympathies. So as the war ended and, and as we entered the post-war period, the authorities became quite interested in, in how and where his political views were lying. So there you can see some concern about his allegiance with this society. And the other thing about the files is that it actually provides rich detail about his period prior to arriving in Britain, which includes accounts about his parents, what they did, his schooling, his employment before he arrived in the UK, and even where he was interned by the Nazis in 1938. He appeared before a tribunal on the 28th of November 1939, as I said, and. Uh, this tribunal quite clearly exempted him from internment, but he was interned under the general order of the Secretary of State in July 1940 and was released on the 23rd of February in 1941 after representations had been made to the Home Office by the Artists' Refugee Committee. But we'll, we'll come on later to, to begin to understand why internees were gradually released from the start of 1941. The key period for their confinement was definitely from June 1940 until the beginning of 1941. Okay, well those are the three case studies. Let me just tell you something about the records we've got relating to camps in the National Archive. If we just go back a bit, initially camps were set up to deal with those 569 individuals who were assessed at the end of 1939, beginning of 1940, as being in Category A, so they were very much of danger society and they needed to be immediately imprisoned or, or put, in, put, in, put into the camps. But there are only 569 of them, so they set up these, these camps. As I say, Isle of Man, most of them, but others in Glasgow, Liverpool, Manchester, Bury, Highton, Sutton Coldfield, Kempton Park, etc. Uh, and the Isle of Man, this is a picture of Hutchinson Camp, and there's a picture of Morag Camp. There was something like I don't know, 15 or 20 different camps set up on the Isle of Man. And camps were housed by different categories of, 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 uh, of internees, and we'll come on to that in a moment. But essentially you had male camps, and then you had camps for women with children. And there were further divisions in who was housed in which particular camp. This is a record, Home Office record, HO215-264. And this explains really about who were housed in particular camps. The Metropole camp on the Isle of Man housed fascists and merchant seamen. For some reason, they put those two together. And their, and their work, the work that they were assigned when they were on the camp, was matched to their skills and ability. And maybe that's one of the reasons why they, they were matched together. The Oncan camp housed what it described as the aristocrats, 
among the Italian internees, such as wholesalers, retailers, hoteliers, and restaurateurs. And Camp N at Ramsey accommodated the lowest class of Italians, such as ice cream merchants, fried fish shop proprietors, cheap boarding house keepers, or cafe owners. But clearly at this point, when there was a big increase in the number of people that the camps had to house, they really forgot that they weren't seeing Jew Jewish refugees. They were just clearly seeing them as German or Austrians and just putting them into the appropriate camp. And we do have roll calls or lists of people who were uh, interned in camps. There's no name index to these. It's a case of calling up files and just working through the alphabetical list to see whether someone appears who, who may, or may, or may or may not be an ancestor or for whatever reason. And the information isn't particularly great. It tells you which camp they were housed, their full name, their camp or interning number, and their date of birth. And this is the one for Metropole Camp on the Isle of Man. There's also one in Morag Camp on the Isle of Man as well. You'll find these in the series HO215. They won't survive for all the camps. In fact, it's a very small representative sample. So what did these people do when they were inter interned in camps? Well, clearly, it was important that they were given accommodation, they were given food, and in turn, they themselves actually provided some work to assist in the war effort. But one of the key problems in the Isle of Man and elsewhere in June 1940 was that all of a sudden, more and more people were expected to be housed, and this file kind of demonstrates that. A further 12,000 were, in, were, were interned in June 1940, so it, it had gone from about 570 people to in excess of 12,000 in about six months. And the numbers clearly led to a serious space problem within these camps, and there was a shortage of commodities such as books, clothes, cigarettes, as this letter shows from the Isle of Man. And as I say, most internees were employed on the land by, in the case of the Isle of Man, rural farmers, so local farmers. And this is a Home Office circular with a clear set of instructions and agreements for both the farmers, what, what they would get out of this relationship, and the camps themselves. And we've got a, a record, which is HO213-1053, which is essentially a photograph of an inspection of camps on the Isle of Man in about 1941. And this is an example of one of the industries which was set up there. It was a glove-making industry. And this file generally goes to show that, by and large, the internees were treated very well. There was good food, there was good accommodation, and they, they they, they were treated as, as well as could be, but obviously they were, they were confined. And this is one of the, the industries that they were set to. And this is another one as well. Offering education and training. This is a dressmaking class at the camp, plus a cat as well. There's a really interesting file that we came across relatively recently. And it was by an internee who started life on the Isle of Man, but then found himself being shipped to an internee camp in Australia and then back again. And the reason that you know, a lot of internees found themselves being sent overseas was because of the serious space problem that existed in the UK in June 1940. And there were offers from both the Canadian and Australian governments to accommodate these internees. So lots of them were actually shipped to Canada and Australia to help the UK with this accommodation problems. And they were shipped overseas from the 24th of June, 1940, and for the first part of July. And the main vessel that took them was the Ettrick, the Sabiski, Duchess of York, the De, De Nera, and the Arandora Star. 
And this particular file, as I say, it's, it's just a lot of artwork and, and diary that one particular internee kept. And it includes things like the lunch that he had on, on board the, uh, the Largs Bay, which is the ship that brought him back from Australia to, to the Isle of Man in 1941. He actually went to a camp in Australia called the Hay Camp that was set up, I think it was in New South Wales, and he was there from September 1943 <laughs> to May 1941. And this is a, uh, as I say, it's a diary, and it, it, was, a, it was a camp magazine that he, he either received or he helped to publish. His name, by the way, was Havig Alexander, and as you see, his, his name's written on the top there. So it just provides quite a detailed insight to how and what camps were like at that time during the war. Obviously, they were, they were quite boring places to be in, particularly if you were confined there 24-7. But here, there's a newspaper article and there's uh, you know, some, some information and, and, and literature to keep, to keep the people interested. An awful lot of children were also interned with, with the mothers, so there were separate youth groups that were set up uh, as this particular one explains. And there's a bit of text there about, about how the camps were useful to educate children in, in learning new skills for new jobs at the, at the end of the war. So there was a, an active camp school providing full-time education. And there is a sketch that this, this internee marked out himself from being interned in Liverpool in 1940 then going on the Isle of Man, then going back to Liverpool, and then going right around by boat, probably took about five or six weeks, to uh, Fremantle. Then he went round to Sydney, and then he went to this uh, camp called Hay. So it's around about 12,000 miles and back again. So who actually went, who was selected to go to Australia and Canada in 1941? Well, quite a lot. It was estimated that 2,500 prisoners were taken to Australia on the ship, the Danira. This was quite a lot. The ship itself would, would normally only hold about 1,500 people, and it became quite a famous story. I don't know if you've ever seen the Danira boys, but we'll, we'll come on to it to a moment. Uh, it was a film made for television in the 1980s. And these 2,500 prisoners comprised of both Nazi sympathisers and Italians and some... Jews, Jewish refugees as well, so it's a really sort of a mix of people without much thought, uh, really, by putting them together. And obviously it created a lot of resentment and a lot of conflict on this long journey. As I say, it really had maximum capacity for 1,500, including crew, yet 2,500 plus crew went there. So the resulting conditions were described as being inhumane. And the transportees were also subject to ill treatment and theft by the 309 poorly trained British guards on board. And the voyage actually took 57 days. And it was also made under the risk of enemy attack. And the ship itself managed to avoid miraculously tor torpedoes and, and, and U-boats and whatever. And on its arrival in Sydney, the first Australian on board was Medical Army Officer Alan Frost, and he was appalled, and his subsequent report led to the court-martial of the army officer in charge, a Lieutenant Colonel William Scott. And the 1985 television movie, The De Niro Boys, starring Bob Hoskins, depicted their experiences from being arrested uh, in 1940 and then going to Australia and then coming back again. And that's a picture of the De Niro Boys themselves, people who actually made this trip. And this is the 50th anniversary. So 
that picture would have been taken in 1990 to, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of that horrendous journey. Many of the Jewish refugees enrolled in the Pioneer Corps on their release and returned to Britain to help defeat Germany in the war. And gradually public opinion was swayed to support the internee, particularly obviously internees who were clearly in support of the Allied, the Allied role in the war. This is in 1941-42. This is really the, uh, it's relating to a condition in a camp in Australia. And this, this, this particular file, it's, it's, it's talking about a dispute and a hunger strike, but uh, it, they're quite clear, the refugees here, is that they're desperate to join the army because they, they want to help defeat Hitler, particularly as news of the atrocities from concentration camps are beginning to filter through from 1941 to 42. And obviously these refugees are, are furious that they are, they're not being allowed to actually join the Pioneer Corps and help, you know, help the Allied effort. Uh, and as such, this, this is their protest. It's not about the camp conditions that, that, that the camp commander assumes that it's about. It's, it's about not being able to, uh, to join up and, and join the Allied, Allied force. That's, that's quite an interesting document. But one of the things that really did sway public opinion to uh, internees was the tragic event of the SS Arundora Star, which was bound to Canada. And it was sunk in the Atlantic following being torpedoed by German U-boats. And on board were 712 Italians, 438 Germans, including Nazi sympathisers and Jewish refugees, and 374 British seamen and soldiers. And tragically, as I say, the ship was bombed on the 2nd of July. And we have records in War Office Series 361, but also Home Office, about this tragedy. Where, and it provides you with a list of where all these internees had been interned in Britain, and this is just some of the examples of those internment camps that I was mentioning about before. And then within the documents, you get lists of individuals. There is a picture of the Arundora Star, which sadly, as I say, was torpedoed in June 40. And it's estimated that over half of them lost their lives. And it really was this event that swayed public sympathy towards the enemy aliens. And only a month after, or just less than a month after, in August 1940, 1,600 Category C and B enemy aliens, these are people who'd initially been categorised as C and B, were released immediately in August 1940. And by October, a further 5,000 Germans, Austrians and Italians had been released. And this was following the publication of the Undersecretary of the Home Office, Osbert Peake's white paper, Civilian Internees of Enemy Nationality. And the paper identified categories of persons who could be eligible for release. By December 1941, sorry, 1940, 8,000 internees had been released, leaving 19,000 still in camps in Britain, Canada and Australia. And of the released, some 1,200 applied to join the Pioneer Corps. And they would be joined by internees in Canada and Australia. But here the process of release would take a lot longer. By March 1941, a total of 12,500 had been released, rising to 17,500 August 1941. And by 1942, they estimate that fewer than 5,000 people remained interned, and those were mainly on the Isle of Man. So that's really it. I've been talking for about 30, 45, 50 minutes. If you wanted to take this further, I wrote a book earlier this year called Migration Records, and there is at least one or two chapters which, which relates to the policy of internment during the Second World War.
thank you very much for listening. Thank, thank you. This event was recorded live on the 15th of September 2009 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>